Cheers. Cheers. Well, hardly hear that one. Probably not. And um, this, is, oh. this is perfectly themed. What are you drinking? I'm drinking a pint of Guinness. Oh. Oh. And I'm, I'm drinking a pint of Kilkenny. And we're enjoying the, the crack. First of all, I'm Kana. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm Ambie. <laughs> this, this is Diplomacy, Diplomacy Games. Games. Um, episode 50. Eh? Number 50. Woo! <laughs> And, they and said we'd never make it. I said, <laughs> who did say? Who did say that? <laughs> you have Irish ancestry, Andy. Yes. See, I wear a clatter ring for my wedding ring. Oh, bravo. Yes. Yep. I... My great-grandfather immigrated to Australia from Ireland. Okay, right. I'm, 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 I come from the Scottish side of things. My grandmother came over here from Scotland, so I've got lots of different bits and pieces in me. Bits of, bits of Scot, bit of... Irish, bit of English, bit of German. <laughs> it's a bit of everything. Das ist gut, yeah. Das ist gut, das ist gut. Um, and yeah, why are we in an Irish pub, Kana? It, it ghoulies. Gilhoolies. Gilhoolies. Specifically in an Irish pub because we have just conducted an interview that for with, a, an, Irish with guest. an Irish guest. So his name is Zach Twomley. Um, those of you may know, may or may not know him as the... Uh, host of the podcast series When Diplomacy Fails, yes. which comes in first above us if you kind of search for the word diplomacy in any podcast app. Of course he does. I mean, That's he's got good. a gazillion more listeners He's got us. a gazillion more listeners <laughs> yeah. because uh, more people are interested in history than some obscure board game. Mm, correct. <laughs> and so we can't blame him. No, 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 um, no. Having said that, he has conducted games on um, as part of... His, yes, his, his podcast. Yes, and he goes into that. He does in indeed. He does indeed. So, um, so most recently, Zach has done a eighty-five episode series on the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, so he, he's one of these um, history podcasters that go deep, very, very deep, an incredibly deep dive. So, as opposed to say Dan Carlin, that will kind of spend like uh, I don't know, put out one episode every nine months, and it's six hours long. Um, Zach at one stage was putting out episodes literally every day that were between about half an hour to an hour long all around what physically happened a hundred years ago during the Treaty of Versailles process. And the reason that I reached out to Zach to be part of our, um, our, our show, twofold. One, he talks about the bloody game diplomacy all the time on his website, on his website, in his podcast. And two, just the nature of the content that he's been recently dealing with, both with the Treaty of Versailles and a couple yes. of other series he's done around the August crisis, no, July crisis, sorry, um, and one of the games that he's physically created, the delegation game, um, is something that's very, very related to diplomacy. So um, on the delegation game, to kind of give some context with this particular interview, uh, he kind of basically created a game with about 35 to 40 players um, where people were meant to take on the persona of a real or fictitious uh, statesman at the Treaty of Versailles trying to negotiate an alternate version of the Treaty of Versailles. <laughs> and he described it when he was trying to recruit people, saying it's a bit of a mashup, effectively, between like a, a fantasy football thing, because you, know, you get to choose who you want to be, um, you know, Dungeons and Dragons from the RPG bit, and diplomacy because of just the... The, the negotiations, the backstabbing arrangements and things like that. So we, we do talk about that in the interview. And um, without further ado, shall we uh, start it now? Oh, we might as well, <laughs> because yes. Because I thoroughly enjoyed... Um, Zach and I nerding out on history. Nerding out on history. So anyway, here we go. 
Zach Twomley, um, welcome to the Diplomacy Games podcast, and I guess by default, um, you can welcome us to your podcast, and we're doing this as a bit of a joint thing. <laughs> yes, indeed, it's an, it's nice to have a nice uh, collaboration during the summer that has very little to do with Versailles, and that I don't have to stay up very late to do. So thanks very much for having me on, guys. Yeah, thank you very much. And I guess it's interesting, because you, you are in summer, you've just come back from holidays from Sicily, have you? Mm-hmm, yep. How was it? Uh, let's just say let's just say if you're gonna go to sicily don't go to the part of sicily i went to because (laughs) palermo is not not the nicest place but it it was nice to nice to get away and i and i did read a lot of stuff about longbows and and everything so i had a nice relaxing break yeah i'm kind of obsessed with longbows now it's just the way my brain works but it was a nice break but yeah i i basically i was too tired you know when you're you're too tired to go on holidays that's what i was basically like and i should have just stayed in bed for a week pretty much but it was still fun were, were longbows much in use in in sicily um it wasn't the fact that i was that i was in sicily so i felt compelled to read about longbows it was more the fact that i just surrounded myself for whatever reason i think it's because it was just not versailles i surrounded myself with pretty much like middle ages english history stuff so i was i had an audiobook of dan jones on the fly about the plantagenets well i also had i was reading on my kindle you know Bernard Cornwell's uh, series. He's most well known for Sharp, the Sharp books, and the Sharp kind of TV series. But he also wrote this really great series on an archer called Thomas of Hookton, and it's a four-part series that basically covers his life during all the big uh, English victories during the Hundred Years' War. So it was just so nice to get into something fresh and read historical uh, historical fiction. And just like just relax, really. So yeah, the the re- I pretty much read the entire holiday. I think I stepped outside like three or four times and just stayed in air conditioned rooms and read. So that was my holiday. Fantastic. I think actually uh, Kane has recommended to me before to read um, Burn Cornwall. I think it was the, uh, the the series around King Arthur as a beginning to kind of get me hooked into that one. So uh, I did. I think download it onto my Kindle. I haven't actually listened read it yet. So um, anyway. Mm. Maybe I'll need to get back into it. So, uh, oh, that sounds, sounds great. Um, I, I guess it's that many of your listeners will know you as that um, crazy history podcaster that's, you know, as you said before, has put out you know, massive, massive long episodes. I think there was 85 for Treaty of Versailles. Yep. <laughs> but not only just that one, but a lot of your other series, you know, I've listened to over, over the years. And quite often you occasionally will drop in, you know, reference that sounds like you're talking around the game diplomacy. So it seems to me that you have like a special place in your heart for the game. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, first I, I have to make a confession, and my confession is that I've never actually played the online diplomacy game because in my experience, because my experience literally consists of about 10 years ago when my friend Sean and I were in his caravan in Wexford. It, we, we literally just for like an entire week we sat around with us, the two of us and, and a few other guys, and we played this game Diplomacy and we would not, we were very strict because both of us we were playing the game for the first time. So we were following the rules to the letter, but we had the game in a specific room and we weren't allowed to go into that room because, you know, these games can go on for several days. No one was allowed to go into that room except for the parents and the parents Whenever they went in, they had to kind of make sure that no one had moved their pieces around the board and no one had disturbed anything or anything. So there was this well 
preserved room for several days of the week. And I don't even know if we actually finished the game in the end, but I think just just from that, I've always wanted to play the game since, whether offline or online. But believe it or not, I never had the time. But I've I've always had a special place in my heart for it because that game was just it was so unlike anything I'd ever played before. And I, I really enjoyed it. And it got my it got my juices flowing in in a history sense because I mean it's set in 1914, which is kind of like like it was it was so great to me to play a game set in that era. And I didn't even know a game like that existed until this very dusty copy of it was taken out of the old cupboard in the caravan. And uh, without even planning to it, it basically became a, a diplomacy holiday. So yeah, that's my experience, and it was really great, very nostalgic. So what a fantastic introduction to the game! What 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 uh, what what country did you play? Can you remember, Zach? <laughs> this might actually surprise you a bit, but because we had, we didn't actually have enough players to play all of the all of the all of the countries. So I played Italy and <laughs> and the Ottoman Empire at the same time. <laughs> that's that's a, that's a that's a powerful combination if if used correctly. Yeah. Yeah, well, I didn't use them correctly, so <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they weren't that powerful. But it was a, it was a good learning experience, and I think realizing how how difficult it was to play as Italy and uh, and yeah, how kind of ruined they are from the beginning. It, it kind of gave me a soft soft spot for Orlando later on. I think in in Versailles. One thing I'm interested in there, Zach, is obviously you've had that experience. From just, I mean, we, we've both Kanra and I are obviously very, very familiar with the game, but probably a lot of your listeners aren't, and I'm sure they're probably going, "Oh, it sounds like Risk, but set in World War One." Um, did you want to go into a little bit more detail from your perspective around how what what's, what makes the game very different to most other games with its dynamics and the mechanics behind it? Sure. Yeah. Well, for me, the big thing was all the negotiations that you do with people in person and the whole like what now I don't know if you guys play it this way, but we were very strict about it. So you literally wrote down the moves you were going to make and you couldn't deviate them. You couldn't deviate from them rather. And when you were negotiating deals with the different people there, you left the room and sometimes went like several several feet down the driveway so no one could actually hear what you were saying we were very we were very strict about it and we just did not trust each other at all and sure enough i think i remember my friend Sean and I pretending that we were at loggerheads for the entire thing. And then in the end, launching this uh, very, very well planned, but very badly executed attack on one of our rivals, which I think might have been France. I think Sean was playing as Britain. I can't remember it very well because it was several years ago. But as far as I remember, the main thing that distinguishes it is the negotiation aspect, which I really got a kick out of because it felt like you were being one of those sneaky statesmen from 1914, doing your best to uh, look honest and dependable while in fact being utterly deplorable. <laughs> got it in one. Uh, I guess for your <laughs> listeners, the way we actually had, we had an interview recently with a, um, a, a developer of what's called variants of, of diplomacy. So it's not just the standard um official board but someone's gone through and changed some things and as a result of that he kind of explained it, i think very very well which is unlike a lot of other games where you've got a random element usually driven by dice or something else like that or drawing cards mm. the random element is actually just the players themselves and how yeah. they play um the fact that this game is not like um 
well, how, does, how do we put this nicely? You're not necessarily always truthful to people when you're talking to them, but sometimes you need to be to kind of build alliances and build relationships to get them on board to ultimately try to uh, make sure that you're the, the winning player, so to speak. Mm, yeah, I, re- I just really enjoy the dynamic. And yeah, I'm looking at your, your past interviews here. Um, Baron von Powell, legendary diplomacy variant developer of 1900, ambition and empire and the College of Cardinals. That sounds that sounds very, very interesting. What's that like to play? <laughs> um, I haven't actually played College of Cardinals yet, um, but the 1900 variant is a it's, it's a gorgeous map. And it's um, well, Amby, you've you've played it more than I have. Yeah, so basically the, the one thing within normal diplomacy, the actual game officially starts in the year 1900, even though you're actually playing a board that's physically set in 1914. Ah. So what, um, what Baron did is actually went back to those pre-Balkan War borders, um, so you actually got a greater projection of the Ottomans into um, both uh, the Balkans but also uh, obviously predating the Italian campaigns into Tripoli. So, um, you've got a, I think you do actually. It was triply a neutral. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but the the thing is that that kind of creates that scenario. But you've also then got um, Britain setting up and beginning the game, uh, not just in um, its normal, you know, the the home islands, but also having a presence in uh, Egypt, controlling the Suez Canal and right. fleet yeah. in Gibraltar, mm. as well as mm. um, French forces, obviously around modern day Algeria and Tunisia. So, uh, and, and the other thing, of course, is it, it beefs up the size of Germany to actually better reflect its powerhouse nature um, going into the 20th century. Uh, sure. And the other thing, I think, which was really interesting about the way it's, it's put together is the fact that the, the Russian player um, basically can kind of create a, a, an extra reserve army if it's being just um, hammered and nailed much the same way that you can imagine that the Russians in real life could kind of draw upon the resources in Siberia to be able to kind of, uh, as they did with Napoleon and, and as they did obviously with Hitler, to be able to push back. Mm, yeah, very interesting. So it's it's two very kind of different playing experiences. So would you say that 1900 kind of offers a more a more fleshed out version of diplomacy? I think so. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I think it's kind of considered to be more um, balanced um, as a game. Right. So it's 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 harder to um, win. It's it's um, there are certain not obviously within a normal uh, classic map uh, within diplomacy. There's certain um, parameters there where certain people know how to play certain um, openings and how to, to do things. And and often some players, like you mentioned before, Italy is usually in a very very bad position and can't do very well. Um, some players find it very difficult to play uh, Austria-Hungary. Uh, others find it easy. So it, it's quite interesting how that works out. But I think some of the other variants that Baron von Powell put together, like the College of Cardinals, uh, which he co-developed, and it's still not quite there. He's, he's been developing it now for how long, Kana? For about 10 years now? Uh, yeah, with a guy, Tim Hay- Haywood. Yeah, So, um, and that one is based around... Um, well, it's, it's basically around the period of the, of the Crusades and um, the prior to the schism within the uh, the Catholic Church. Uh, mm. So you've also got you know the um, the um, the powers within um, where is it? There's the Russians and there's another uh, Orthodox player as well. I'm trying to remember who they all are. But anyway, it's Byzantine. Yes, yes. So uh, and you've got also actually yeah, I think it was the Byzantine Empire. It was before they, they'd um, they'd fallen. So um, 
and that's got some really, really strange um, extra dynamics over and above standard um, board game play, such as, you know, when you're electing the Pope and the powers that the Pope has. And right. Yeah, very, very complex. Very interesting, though. Yeah. So it's kind of like medieval Total War, but on a board game. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm playing a lot of that at the moment because it really helps me relax, especially when I set the difficulty to easy and can't possibly lose. <laughs> <laughs> so giving that kind of backstory around what diplomacy is all around um from your experience I mean, you know from reading many many different um histories obviously you spent a fair amount of time recently with the with the great war um but obviously a lot of other periods as well is there a, a two or three figures in history that you know you've studied who you think you know if you actually sat them down at a diplomacy board they would do incredibly well and why do you mm -hmm. think that I think first and foremost, I think you'd have to start with Bismarck and that, just because to me, I think the the, the 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 board game itself, the way it's laid out by 1900, is essentially because of what Bismarck did. I think it might actually be really interesting to have like a different version of diplomacy set maybe like in 1864 or something, just because it would be so different to what we're used to. And it would really show just exactly how much of an impact that guy had. Also, of course, it goes without saying his his diplomatic dealings in the 70s and 80s were purely based around those principles you have in diplomacy, which is almost like protecting what you have and ensuring that no one else gets too powerful with sneaky backdoor dealings, which most of the time left pretty much everyone unhappy except for Germany. But because of Bismarck's force of personality, he was just able to carry it through. I mean, there's a lot to be said for the fact that like, you know, his domination of German politics didn't exactly prepare that country very well into the 20th century, with the results that when he was gone, there was pretty much no one that could fill his shoes. But at the time, Bismarck didn't really care about successors. All he really cared about was uh, himself and making himself as powerful as possible and his own legacy. And yet still, he's kind of he's got this kind of attractive pull, I think, just like all the great men in history would do. You're almost drawn to them without even really being able to understand why. And even though you know they're not saints by any means, the kind of uh, the dynamism and the 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 fact that they got things done pretty much, whether or not they did them in the right way, really draws me to to a guy like Bismarck and makes me think that he would be very good indeed at playing diplomacy. Or that although I'm not sure that by the end of it we'd feel like he played entirely fair, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Um, any others that spring to mind? Um, I think uh, around in the same era, I think uh, Benjamin Disraeli was remarkably good at, at not even just playing the game, but almost shaping the narrative. Like he pretty much transformed what it meant to be the Conservative Party and to be a, a Tory in the 1870s, mostly because he brought up national honour and kind of equated like equated the Conservative Party with patriotism and national honour and all these kinds of things. So he's very interesting because of that. So I think if if those two were playing, if Disraeli and Bismarck were playing, Disraeli would certainly be the loudest player and insisting with his allies that they had to go to war. When in reality, maybe he had a different plan and you wouldn't really realise that until the very end. So actually, I think it would be very interesting to have these historical people playing as their own countries. At least it would result in fewer deaths and not as much uh, not as much damage being caused to the world. But yeah, I think if uh, Disraeli is and um, Disraeli and Bismarck are definitely two and 
to think of another one i i it's hard to, it's hard to think of that many in the kind of modern era maybe churchill could be an obvious one but also further back i think to like to to earlier times so at the moment i'm looking at the 30 years war and axel oxenstierna was the name of the swedish chancellor during the 30 years war and from a period of about 1611 to 1654 i think it was he essentially was the prime minister of sweden and as you can imagine during that time sweden became essentially a major power in europe by virtue of the victories that its king gustavus adolphus won on the battlefield so it was all up to Axel Ossensdierna to pr protect all of that. And he did a remarkably good job considering the very low resources, very low population that Sweden had. And as a result, then, Sweden was maintained as a major power up till about the Great Northern War in the early 1700s. So it's a remarkable achievement. People often credit Sweden's like arrival on the great power scene to Gustavus Adolphus. But I think there's a lot to be said for Axel Oxenstierna, or Ax Ox, as I've taken to calling him, because his name takes so freaking long to say. Uh, and there's a lot to be said for crediting him with some of that creation of empire as well. So I think he'd be very interesting to have, although I'm not sure what, what country he'd play, because as far as I can recall, you can't actually can't actually play as Sweden, can you, in, in diplomacy? Not on a classic board. In, in that, um, that other variant we mentioned about um, Baron von Powell put together, which was Ambition and Empire, you can play as Sweden in that one. Oh, see, there you go. So if we if we had the three of them together, so Disraeli playing as Britain and, and Bismarck playing as, as Germany and Axel Oxenstierna playing as Sweden, that'll be a very interesting game to just watch over. And it'd be interesting to see especially how the three of them clash with one another. Or maybe they just turn out to be firm friends and screw the rest of the world over. Who'll know? You can always complicate matters further by throwing Talleyrand into France and... Uh, <laughs> And uh, Metternich into Austria as well, if you want to make things really interesting. That's true. And those are two very obvious ones there that I missed. But because my head is all 30 years war at the moment, yeah. uh, <laughs> Axox kind of recommended himself to me. But yeah, that'd be very interesting. I think there's a there's a kind of a, a great person to play as as each power you could find without too much difficulty. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um Listening, actually, obviously, during the, the Versailles anniversary um, project, there was actually one particular episode and one quote that you read out in episode 73, which was around when the Allies were receiving the counter-proposals from the Germans. Mm. And um, it was a quote that you read about Colonel House describing Lloyd George. And when you, when you said this to me, it sounded like a diplomacy player critiquing another diplomacy player. <laughs> And um, so I'll, I'll actually reread your, your quote, uh, sure. which you quoted obviously as well. And um, th this is obviously in, in the context of, of talking about the terms of the treaty. So uh, Colonel House was saying, quote, George and I dis uh, were discussing the, the German objections. This uh, was the purpose of the luncheon. Lloyd George always amuses me. I'm sure hmm. he does not like me. And yet today one would have thought I was his best friend. He decided to use me because he knows he is to have a fight with uh, Clemenceau about softening the terms, obviously the terms of the treaty, but you could equally apply that to a board uh, if you were playing a game. And, mm. on. and he also knows that the public opinion in England demands such softening. I always lead him one and then let him feel that I'm innocent of his motives and that he apparently succeeds in accomplishing his purposes with me. I enjoy being with him because he has so much charm and such a fine sense of humour. It is a great pity, though, that some of his qualities cause one to distrust him. 
<laughs> yeah, that's an excellent quote. And actually, I managed to whiff it a little bit. Uh, you can tell that I that I was reading or writing rather late at night. It's not lead him one as I wrote. It's meant to be lead him on. But I didn't even <laughs> I didn't even notice. So after after I read that, I was like, what does lead him one even mean? And I actually looked up what lead him one even means. And there was no record of that phrase existing. And then it turns out that it's actually lead him on. And I just made a mistake. So there you go. The, the great confession right here. There we are. I've requoted your your incorrect quote. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> see all the ripples. See all the ripples I've created just by making that one mistake. But yeah, I, I I honestly think that that the it's it's it was just sublime being able to read the innermost thoughts of these different characters. Now it, it's innermost thoughts with a bit of an asterisk because of course House didn't actually write this diary. He was dictating it to someone else who wrote it down for him. And then on on the full knowledge that it would be read by other people. So he did use language. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever written diary yourself, but you certainly wouldn't use flowery language when trying to describe things that have happened during your day. But that didn't stop Edward House at all. And he really did go on several tangents. But they make for fascinating reading and for fascinating listening as well. They really do capture the essence of what it was like being in the Council of Ten or Council of Four and everything else. And I do like his character sketches of the different people. He's surprisingly generous to some and then not to others. And it's it's nice to see his opinions of the people change too. So he starts off uh, being a bit wary of Lloyd George and feeling a bit kind of kind of unsure, maybe a bit skeptical towards Vittorio Orlando and not not necessarily distrustful of Clemenceau, but but not really being able to be sure of his motives. And by the end, he kind of feels as though Germany has been screwed over and that France is somehow to blame and that the Italians were difficult, but that Wilson should have listened to them more and that Lloyd George was basically a charlatan and he, he changed his mind like a weather vane, all this kind of thing. So yeah, you could easily use this to describe a diplomacy player. Well, I think what's interesting about it is that this wasn't even a game. This was real life. And these people were looking at each other in in the kind of way that you would normally associate with a game like Diplomacy. But unfortunately, it was real life and it had ramifications for us that exist to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess what would be interesting is to get your take on on who at the at the Treaty of Versailles actually was a terrible Diplomacy player. Um, listening to the Versailles show, show, it kind of was very clear to me that Vittorio Orlando seemed to be a, a statesman totally incapable of winning over his allies to his cause and, and got a really dud deal as a result. You know, the way he'd kind of carry on about Fumumiac. Sorry, I'll mispronounce that because I heard it, you say it 50 million times, Zach, but I can't even say it myself. <laughs> Can you do it for me? Uh, Fiume. Fiume. Thank you very much. That little enclave on the Croatian coast. Um, yeah, you know how to carry on about that and carry on about the Treaty of London and and you know create all sorts of issues. Obviously, with um, uh, Woodrow Wilson, was there anyone else at the um, during the whole process that you felt was also just terrible if they were playing that game and uh, in real life? <laughs> I don't necessarily think anyone was particularly terrible. I think that people pretty much like the nature of a compromise is that everyone remains unhappy, but. The, the the real problem with Orlando, just to look at him for a second, is that he didn't have the leverage that other people had. And because he didn't have the leverage, he felt the need to compensate by being more stubborn. And now he wasn't stubborn all the way through, but he was stubborn enough at the beginning to make the other three turn against him in a way. And because he didn't have that pull or that influence that the other three had, 
they felt content to ignore him. And often as a result of that, he reacted in, uh, in in an understandable way because he was frustrated that like certain rules were applying to him, but not to others, this kind of thing. And he wasn't being let in on many of the big plans. But the thing that I really found interesting is that just because he didn't have all of this big kind of this is this influence, it didn't mean that he wasn't being talked about. Like when he left uh, in late, was it late, late April, uh, mm-hmm. uh, when he left for a while to go back to Rome, ostensibly to basically talk to the parliament in Rome, but also, as it turned out, to kind of put some pressure on the big three while he was away. The big three talked about him pretty much nonstop for the first few days of May. Like there were several times when I found all of this stuff because I was working off the minutes that are available online, really. And a lot of that I had to condense even further. Like there were several days when all they did was talk. And it's not that they came up with new things. They were basically saying, I'm worried about Victoria Orlando. And the other guy would say, yeah, me too. And then the other guy would say, yeah, me too. What are we going to do about it? And then they get distracted by something and then it would continue on the next day. And it was mad. But yeah, a, a very long, this is a very long winded way of me saying, I think Orlando would have been better had he had more leverage. And I think that's like if you recognize in diplomacy that a player is essentially beaten, you're not exactly going to team up with him and and work in his interests or really even help him out for the sake of your benefit. Because if he gets eliminated, then you'll be all on your own. So I think there's a lot to be said for the importance of having that leverage, having that power, all that kind of thing. As 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 far as finding someone who was also quite bad, I can't, no one really comes to mind. I think you have to look at the minor powers. I mean, it's to everyone's surprise, really, that Ioan Bratianu, the Romanian premier, did so well in the end because nobody liked him, which is kind of that always made me laugh. It'd be like that diplomacy player who everyone hated throughout the entire game because they were so insufferable. But then at the end, they somehow managed to win, even even despite all that. So <laughs> really, uh, Bratianu was 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 lucky because the Romanians, not the Romanians, sorry, the Hungarians had that uh, communist takeover by Bela Kuhn for much of 1919, which freaked out the big four and eventually led to them granting all of these crazy, ridiculous concessions to Romania, granting Romania portions of territory that they never should have had. Like Romania's population went from about 7 million to 17 million after the peace conference. And much of the people that were in that 17 million by no means identified as Romanian. So they, with that, I think that was one of the biggest whoopsies of the peace conference, giving Romania all that stuff. But as I learned looking through all this, and I would have gone into this in more detail if I had time to look at the Hungarian peace treaty, but I didn't have enough time to really do it. And by then I was kind of losing my sanity anyway. So, but what I really learned was that the big four didn't really have the the power themselves to project into Eastern Europe. And they kind of just let the Romanians do what they wanted to do because to them, it was better that a insufferable guy like Bratianu gains all this territory then the Bolsheviks gain the territory instead. So, yeah, very long-winded answer, but hopefully you, you catch my drift. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, I think the, the one that stands out to me probably as a bit of a sideline would have been actually um, Woodrow Wilson himself. Um, mm. The fact that he came into it with obviously very high ideals and it didn't take long for him just to kind of whittle away and bargain away all of his principles effectively uh, just to try to get an outcome where at least everyone would have signed a piece of paper saying, yes, we agree to, you know, having a, um, 
having the League of Nations and then ultimately end up not being able to deliver it within his own um, country as a result of, you know, not being you know, politically mindful around the, the balance of power and how much it had shifted back in the States. Yeah, he was it was looking at Wilson was very strange because I was in Boston last November and even talking to some Americans there. Some of them have very strong opinions on Wilson, which I understand. I mean, the guy wasn't out and out racist and he did some other domestic things that weren't particularly good. I've been told like American history is by no means my forte, but I really kind of delved into the character of Woodrow Wilson and what he essentially wanted was for the United Nations to exist in 1919. And he thought that the United Nations would literally fix every single thing that was wrong with the world. And because of that, even though he recognized at several several moments that the decisions he was making were, were wrong and, and that they would be leaving people unhappy, his answer increasingly as time went on and he became more exhausted, I think, was that, well, I know you're unhappy, but don't worry because the League of Nations will will make you happy and will will solve everything. Like it was his answer to the Irish, to the Chinese, to to the to the Japanese as well, to the Italians. There was all these ideas put forward like plebiscites and things like that that would solve any issues that people had. And the British, that, that's what really interests me, because our vision of the League of Nations that we have handed down to us uh, in the interwar years is the British and French, like, basically trying against against the, the tides of history, if you like, to try and make the League work, where in reality, if you look at it in 1919, they didn't even really want the League of Nations. I mean, some people certainly recognised it as 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 useful but only in so far as it protected their own interests like france wanted the league to protect them against germany and britain wanted it to preserve its empire so they weren't really interested in the kind of high-minded ideals that wilson had but they went along with it because they were like well that's what the president of america wants and we want america on side and then of course the americans don't even join the thing that wilson uh, thought up so it doesn't really work out for them in that end it was just a weird way for history to go but uh, and just like that, I've completely forgotten the question because I've gone on a mad ramble. <laughs> it's okay. I kind of added a little, added a little bit more around bad diplomacy players at Versailles. Um, so, <laughs> uh, actually, one thing I'll, I'll, I'll be upfront with Zach is quite clear. I'm asking most of the questions here, which isn't normal, but that's probably because I'm more the history nerd on on our show. Uh, Kana, is there anything that you wanted to jump in at any stage with? By the way, uh, I'll, I'll I'll interject. I'll interject. Interject. Ooh, interesting. I'll, I'll jump. I'll jump in. Big words. Yeah, no, I, I'm listening. Quite fascinated by you know this this discussion around an area I know vague bits of knowledge about, but not not as in depth as you guys. So please continue. Well, if you'd like to get that in-depth knowledge, all you have to do is simply listen to 85 episodes of the Versailles Anniversary Project, complete with 68 hours of content. What else would you want to do with your life? I mean, come on. <laughs> I, 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 I have listened to some of them, Zach. Yeah, I have listened to some. Okay. <laughs> I think some is enough for most people. Uh, yeah, I think some would have been enough for me, but unfortunately I had a, I had a duty to work against my will on many, on many occasions. So, yeah. <laughs> What's actually interesting, I think, is if on a lot of the various uh, podcast um, apps, uh, I think some people call them podcatchers or whatever like that, um, when you search for the word diplomacy, when diplomacy fails tends to come up number one and diplomacy games comes up number two usually. Ah. So um, obviously totally different <laughs> totally different things we're both talking about, but, <laughs> but strangely similar at the same time. 
Yes, so. but I have to be honest, by the end of it there, I was I was really like, if I could get away with drinking on the podcast, I definitely would have done because that was the way <laughs> that was the way I was going by the end of it. <laughs> That's a good point. So that if any of your listeners to um, WDF um, happen to go across to Diplomacy Games and listen to our show, um, we often do interviews like this, but we'll obviously do an intro and an outro, and they're usually in a, in a pub. We um, I don't think we've actually been in the same pub twice, except for when we do like a back-to-back recording, like a double episode. Um, as a result, unfortunately, folks, we do get a little bit drunk occasionally, and um, we kind of sometimes swear a little bit too. So a bit of a a bit of a parental warning there. If you um, don't want the kids to listen to that, then uh, don't listen to our <laughs> show. But otherwise, um, yes. Feel free to have a listen, and we'll be talking all around our game and around diplomacy. Um, talking about games, actually, you ran a whole parallel game series during the middle of the Versailles Treaty uh, with oh the Delegation Game. Um, so <laughs> I think you were nuts at the start to to go with 85 episodes while still being a universal lecturer. Um, yeah. And then you think you throw this on, on, the, on the mix as well. Um, so I remember at the time, because this is also, okay, this is interesting, when you started describing what you thought uh, the delegation game would be, like an alternate history of the Treaty of Versailles, and you yeah. about it being a cross between fantasy football, Dungeons and Dragons, and diplomacy. Mm. How do you think that panned out, what your vision was for what you thought it was going to be and how it actually ended up transpiring? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> hindsight is twenty twenty, right? It's actually very funny, and it's it's a really nice thing to say that I actually underestimated how passionate people would be in the delegation games. So for a long time, I was like, right, I'll have to do this, I'll have to do this, and each week I'll pro- I'll propose these things for people to vote on, and and that'll be that. It didn't occur to me that people would set up their own. Uh, Facebook messenger groups, which was the main way people communicated. They set up Facebook messenger groups for each treaty. They negotiated separately of me independently. And then at the end of the week, it turned out that the things I had planned to ask them to vote on, they weren't really relevant. So it it, it made more sense for me to ask them to vote on things that they had proposed themselves. So it was really nice in a way to have that. But at the same time, of course, and my wife was driven mad as well, because at one point she was like, I want to be added to one of these groups in like February. And then by the end, they were adding her to every single one because they thought that she wanted to be added to them all. So then like me, she'd be like, Zach, there's another group. What the hell are they talking about this time? Like, it was very, very funny. But yeah, I had to uh, I had to remove the Facebook Messenger app from my phone as well as Facebook as well by like April or or, or March, because I just it, it wasn't just the constant pinging or the fact that I could like mute the messenger groups. It was that people would contact me outside of it and be like, hey, I have a question about this, which is fine. And I wanted them to be able to do that. But you need to have some way of, of switching off. And when you're on like basically on call 24 seven, you never can switch off. So, yeah, it, it was it was great to see the game develop as it did. And to be honest, I wish that I wish that almost I could have traded university lecturing for that instead, because I would have loved to have been given given more attention because I feel like I wasn't as involved as I wanted to be. And I basically wrote the script each each Friday as as it, as it became time to do that. But I would have liked to have taken more part in the discussions and and presented myself more as the chairman. 
But uh, I don't know if you listened to any of the episodes at all, but it got, it got a bit wild. <laughs> all of them. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well done. <laughs> it got it got a bit wild uh, at several respects because, oh. Yeah, There's quite a few times I, I was thinking, okay, is there anyone going to be left, you know, alive the way they're all getting bumped <laughs> off at various stages? Someone asked me if I was... Yeah, someone asked me if I was challenging my inner Tarantino because several of them like just I like it, it was actually quite funny because a few weeks just whatever way it happened people were like I want to change my character or they they stopped they were like I can't keep up with this it's it's far too crazy which obviously I understand so they kind of bowed out and then they were like whenever people did bow out they were like here's the idea I have for how my character dies. It's <laughs> They were never like, yeah, my, my character retires and, and has a nice family and lives happily ever after. It was always like, my character dies horribly, gets frozen in the river and like gets gets chopped them into little bits and like, oh, it's just crazy stuff. Like really, really crazy stuff. Um, if any of your um, delegation game players are having withdrawal um, and they kind of like what we've talked around about diplomacy, um, by all means, I think they should be looking at that game. Was there any players in particular either with their, you know, their alter egos or whatever that you think would be great players? Oh, oh, several, several come to mind. Some, some of them. Now we had at one point we had 35 people technically playing the game and although that sounds a bit crazy what it really looked like was about 10 maybe 15 people being properly active at one time so i kind of focused on them and then they kind of gave a lot back in return i think kieran murphy who was playing a a newfoundland delegate arthur mccallville he did a lot of work there was another guy who was playing as a character called bruce pug and he was an american kind of businessman who was kind of I suppose you could say he wasn't a fan of Woodrow Wilson, so he was kind of supporting Roosevelt instead. But because basically in our alternative history, Roosevelt doesn't die in early 1919 and he goes on to have a have have another term as president. So, yeah, it was it was it was very, very interesting uh, to to go through all that. But I think several other people as well. Uh, Moshi played basically the contrarian contrarian candidates he played first he played this guy called bonifacio fidel who was like this italian kind of secretly zionist character and then he switched to vittorio orlando just for the fun of it and it was very interesting to see him play as orlando because he was basically arguing from the same point that orlando in real life was arguing as and just like in real life people were resentful of his requests and didn't like when he asked for certain things they also had a few other people like there was one guy who played as uh, this guy he invented called uh, Sir Alistair Tankred, who was this British guy and basically resurrected uh, uh, this alliance with Spain and ensured that the British Empire went on and well into the 1940s. And of course, in our alternative history, because we made such a mess, there is no Second World War. Although the Russians are being a bit troublesome and Poland is absolutely ginormous. So whoever played Pilsudski, I can't remember his name, the actual player, but he did a lot of good work as well. And by the end of it, we had a very, very different, very different history to the one we might be used to. I, I actually, yeah, that was a really good um, way you concluded that um, that series by having this vision into the future. Although technically, it's in in the past in our in our time uh, timeline, mm. and um, it's actually been really kind of um, 
I don't know, this that may sound a bit weird, but it's been fun just listening to you talk today around some of these characters. I went, oh, yeah, I remember him. Yeah, I remember him. I remember yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. You get kind of weirdly attached to them as well. And then when they start arguing with each other, it's so funny. It's like this is the way I described it in one of the episodes when sometimes things got a bit real and people got a bit offended at one another. And I was like, guys, you're playing fictional characters arguing about fictional treaties and saying that your fictional feelings are hurt. Like, come on. Get a grip, put things in perspective and, and stop being so uh, stop getting so inflamed about things that aren't real and never happened. Uh, but yeah, like it, people uh, just like when playing diplomacy, people can have dust ups with people in real life over things that happen. So there you go. Cool. So talking dust ups in real life um, as a bit of a segue. In real life, you obviously also have that role of um, university lecturing and you, you do um, that with particular courses around the EU, um, mm. which obviously touches a lot on Brexit at the moment. Um, if you kind of imagine that the various leaders, um, and I think we're recording this now towards the end of July, so I think it's it's just before the, uh, the UK ends up choosing a new Prime Minister. Mm. Um, if you were thinking about the leaders um, past and present, or actually past and potentially future in the UK, and obviously the EU, uh, is there anyone there that you felt, look, they've um, been very, very diligent with the way that they've conducted their negotiations and the way they've um, done things, and, and those who have been, you know, very, very poor at doing that, so to speak, from a, a diplomacy perspective, diplomacy from to a game perspective, not necessarily foreign affairs. <laughs> right, right. Uh, to be honest, it's it's very hard to be positive, especially in Ireland with the, with what Brexit means for Ireland and how no one really realised before they were arguing for Brexit what it would mean for Ireland because nobody mentioned Ireland at all or the Northern Irish border during the 2016 campaign. But the problem with Brexit, there's many problems with Brexit, but one of the main problems is that it's very hard to find shining lights in it because just when you think it can't get any worse, it does start to get worse and you just want to throw your hands up in despair. But yeah, the fact that Brexit was developing and unfolding during the spring of this year, while I was also trying to understand what it meant to be a lecturer, didn't exactly make things uh, easy for me because week on week, it was like there was new things happening, more like day on day and sometimes hour on hour, things changed. So I, I did dedicate a lot of time to teaching them about Brexit, but I'm not sure if they were any closer to really understanding it by the end of time. But yeah, it was, it's very hard to kind of find people that really stand out. I mean, I think if you were to characterize them as diplomacy players, Theresa May would be that character who just goes just goes against against the grain of of, of people's opinions and just stubbornly refuses to relent at all costs and literally just tries to hammer home this this deal or this arrangement that you make might make with someone which seemed like a good idea a while ago but then just just doesn't work but they won't listen so they keep on pushing it relentlessly and maybe if you were to look at in the eu maybe Juncker, jean-claude Juncker. He might be like a kind of a person who tries to make everyone get along, but then has no time really for any kind of nonsense. Uh, for us, maybe closer to home, our Taoiseach, our Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar. <laughs> like, it's it's interesting because in Ireland, most of the time, I don't know what it's like in, in Australia, but we don't really have much time for our politicians because we don't really particularly like them that much. 
by and large, now this is some exceptions, of course, but when people started going on about Leo Varadkar and and basically the British press started to criticize him and Boris Johnson was like, why isn't why isn't his surname Murphy? I thought that all Irish people were were Murphy's like then we're like, hey, shut up, shut up about our shut up about our T-shirt. Only we get to criticize him kind of thing. It, it's funny, like we come weirdly to their defense. And I have to say, like. The Irish, our, our Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, and our Foreign Affairs Minister, uh, Simon Coveney, they both did a good job of, of representing Ireland's interest and kind of standing firm for it. So in that sense, and that that's being as well, they didn't have all that much leverage, although they did have the friendship and and firm agreements of the other European Union states. So in that sense, I think I think they did quite a good job. Maybe you could consider them shining lights, but I think I think time will tell as well. I mean, of course, we've got a new commission president coming up, Ursula von der Leyen or Leiden. I've heard her name pronounced very different ways, but that that might make uh, things change a little bit. So it's 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 interesting. It's still a developing situation, still a developing situation. I was looking at some news reports before and it was talking about in 2017 and they're like, we won't understand what Brexit will look like for at least another year. And I'm like, you poor people, it's still not clear what's happening. And we're what, like over three years since the vote was held and still no one really knows how it's going to pan out. Looking at it kind of historically, are there similarities to uh, another event in history that you could put parallels to that you know of um in terms of brexit or just yeah yeah. no in terms of brexit yeah i think it's interesting because what i was saying earlier about about disraeli and um about disraeli and changing what it means to be like a conservative party supporter and equating kind of patriotism and national honor with with the conservative party I think a lot of people who, and it's just no real way to say this, but a lot of people who don't understand the European Union that well in Britain, or a lot of people who feel like the European Union is to blame without really kind of understanding why, and they've been kind of caught up in this in this narrative of like, oh, it's all it's all the European Union's fault that my town's really run down, or it's all the European Union's fault the industry I used to work in is is gone bust, or etc etc you know and they blame the european union because it's easier to do that than it is to kind of blame the actual socio-economic problems that are in place or underfunding from the government and it's funny really because if you look at the map i mean it's not funny but you know what i mean it's if you look at the map of say the uk and who voted leave and who didn't like the likes of cornwall for instance who have received by far and away the most funding from the eu Uh, at least in terms of the common agricultural policy anyway. So they would receive a lot of money, and yet they still voted to leave as though it was like the EU is ruining Cornwall kind of thing. So I think, now it's a kind of awkward comparison in many respects, but it did occur to me several times, the kind of parallels. It's often said history doesn't repeat itself, but that it can rhyme on occasion. And I think in the 1870s with with Disraeli and changing the Conservative Party and what it meant and kind of blaming Russia for everything and saying we need to stop Russia, we need to go to war to stop Russia and and, and all this kind of thing. And now nowadays you have the alternative version of that in 2019 and a bit beforehand is, oh, well, uh, where's your Dunkirk spirit and, and why don't you believe in Britain anymore? And you have people who might traditionally have voted, say, the Labour Party, who would have been working class, have now been kind of brought over to this narrative of like, 
well, like Brexit party, but also this this idea that in order to be patriotic, you have to be against the European Union because the European Union is the one that's talking down to Britain and trying to restrict Britain on the world stage. And it's just interesting. It's probably not a very good parallel, but to me, sometimes I can see the I can see the kind of the, the similarities between the two cases. Yeah, I think the, the thing that stands out to me is just how how much everything is just degenerated over time with the arguments and um, the animosity, I guess. This is coming from an Australian's perspective. We only see bits mm. and pieces obviously being reported over here. But just the the nature of, of what's proposed. I mean, if you kind of look at Boris Johnson and the way that he's obviously approached things from the very, very beginning, it, it's been almost like, again, I'll, I'll go from a diplomacy perspective, it's like, you know, he's trying to, you know, win the game, so to speak, by coming up and becoming the UK Prime Minister and is likely to achieve that, obviously, by potentially doing, you know, uh, a no-deal Brexit and walking out and going, okay, great, I've won, so to speak. But it's mm. like the equivalent of, um, you know, getting your half the board couldn't quite literally ripping it in half and walking away. It's like, well, <laughs> you've won the game, but you can't play the game ever again now. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, and there is, a, I've talked to some of my friends and some of them are like, do you know what? Britain deserves Boris Johnson because then they'll actually see, oh, wait a minute, this this guy actually genuinely doesn't know what he's doing and doesn't have this kind of, like Boris Johnson is dying to be compared to Churchill and is dying to be like uh, this this Churchillian figure. And I think it's it's about time the scales fell from everyone's eyes and realized just how unprepared he is. Like I was reading, I don't know if you saw recently his speech where he was saying that we will have we will have a way the, the the planes will run. We will still have Mars bars and all this kind of thing. And then he tried to wave this uh, kipper in front of people and was like, this kipper has to have plastic packaging on because the EU says it does. And then it turns out. A, like, we won't have Mars bars because Britain won't be able to import all that stuff, so says some expert in the chocolate industry who works in Britain. And B, the kippers aren't covered in plastic per an EU regulation. That's a UK competence. It's got nothing to do with what the EU wants to do. And even if it did, you kind of have to wrap fish that is raw in plastic, which keeps it and, and, and also a coolant as well, so that it doesn't go off. Like, it's kind of common sense. But there you go. That's the, that's the kind of stuff you're dealing with. And while it, he encourages people to cheer at the time, I think if one of two things happen, if he tries to get a deal and it doesn't work out, he'll have to retreat and maybe rethink his, his, uh, his plan, maybe thinking in terms of the game diplomacy, he'll have to maybe try and find different allies or try and do some other sneaky backroom deals, or he'll just go hell for leather and actually do no deal Brexit after all, which I don't actually think he wants to do. I think he's just saying what people think they want to hear. But if he does go with option B, then yeah, he will be essentially ripping up the board because as much as they're talking about no deal and believing in Britain and clean, pure Brexit, they're going to discover very quickly how diabolical a no deal Brexit actually is and what it genuinely means, it, it'll mean the death of several industries in the UK. It'll mean the end of several services. It'll mean like very, very vast complications, vast difficulties for all these different sectors of Britain that people don't even think about, like not just with the Northern Irish border, which is why people in Ireland are so concerned. It, it, all sorts of different things as well that you don't even think of. Everything from queuing up in, in the Calais crossing, uh, like all sorts of stuff like just the, the, the list of problems are are endless so 
here's hoping he doesn't rip up the board. Here's hoping something happens. Maybe I've seen it proposed that Boris Johnson is the only person who could conceivably propose a second referendum. So most people in Ireland are holding out for a second referendum with with good reason, I think. And you'd find a lot of people who in Ireland who would think that it's a good idea. But as we'll see and as, as we've said before, time will tell. Very, very true. Talking about time will tell, time's been a very, very precious uh, commodity for you uh, in recent days and in recent months, really, hasn't it? Mm. Days at all. So you've wrapped up Versailles. I'm, I'm assuming that you're pretty close to finishing 1956. You're about to kick off later on the 30 Years' War and Poland's not yet lost for Patreon listeners to uh, when diplomacy fails. Presumably you're still keeping your lecturing job and you're about to start a PhD? <laughs> you see, what I've done is I've discovered how to clone myself, so all of this is fine. <laughs> yeah, I I know it sounds, it sounds like madness, it sounds like uh, repeating the stresses of what I've just gone through once again, but there's actually like a lot of uh, a lot of good things I've done to repair myself. Like I've got a lot of the 30 Years War work and a lot of the Poland is not yet lost work done, and I... Uh, I will be reducing my hours in in university because I mean obviously you can't work however many hours I was working while also doing a PhD but the aim is to the aim is to focus mostly on the PhD and just have it so I don't have to do any research or or new writing or anything for the 30 years war or uh, Poland is not yet lost but yeah I I I believe firmly in keeping the podcast going while I'm in while I'm doing the the PhD in Trinity. I don't want things to just go by the wayside. And also just from a purely selfish perspective, it does bring me in an income. So if I just dropped it, then I wouldn't have that income coming through and I probably wouldn't be able to pay for the PhD in the first place. So, yeah. Brilliant. And and I guess as part of that whole process, we our show is probably not quite as big as yours, so we obviously want to make sure that as part of the whole be fit thing uh, within the, <laughs> uh, within your show, you know, we're, we're kind of speaking about it. We're trying to get the word out about um, uh, about when diplomacy fails. Uh, so, for any of our listeners that want to um, learn more about when diplomacy fails and history and, and some of the things we've talked about today, um, where should they go, Zach? Well, I think the best the best thing to say is. I'm on the social media, uh, the social media machine. So if you follow me on Twitter at WDF podcast, you could find the the podcast in Facebook. We have a Facebook group and a Facebook page nearly at 800 members, which is kind of crazy because that means we've got 800 nerds all in one space, which is real nice. But we also have a, a website, which I do need to spend more time and attention on. That's WDFpodcast.com. And that's that's probably the the those are the, those are the kind of three best ways. The website, Twitter, and Facebook are probably the best ones. And yeah, I hope to if for those that completely are confused by what BFIT actually is, BFIT is an acronym I used to use to kind of uh, get people to to support the podcast. And I've been very quiet on BFIT for a while, but I'm I'm gonna bring it back with a vengeance during the Thirty Years' War. So just for old time's sake, B stands for blog. It's the Vassal State blog on WDF podcast. You can find it there by just clicking around a little bit. Uh, e is for email. You can email me directly at uh, hotmail.com. Uh, F is for Facebook, as I said. I is for iTunes. Go and review the podcast or rate rate it or subscribe to it there. And T is for tell anyone or tell anything because I'm not fussy. So there you go. That's Be Fit. And if you do all those, then you'll be well on your way to making this podcast 
uh, get out there as much as possible. <laughs> that's, that's a good acronym. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of that. I thought of that when I was like twenty, and I'm still being asked about how did you think about it. And I literally just moved letters around a board until I found some kind of some kind of word. And uh, yeah, it's kind of embarrassing, but also quite wonderful at the same time. You're still in your twenties, Zach. I am 27. I'll be 28 in October. So yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> there's, there's probably a reason you can fit so much stuff into the day and not fall down. Because <laughs> you're in your 20s still. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm getting closer to the to the falling down stage. And I, I just said there on Twitter, uh, I'm going to be nice to myself from now on and actually have weekends. So. It's it's about one o'clock now. Well, it's 20 past 12 here in Ireland and I'm going to have a beer because it's Saturday and I just feel like I deserve one. So probably going to play some medieval total war and just just relax because relaxing is a very important part of this this process. Excellent. Very, very true. Um, I'm kind of guessing that um, as part of your relaxing, you're probably not going to get time to uh, hop online to play any diplomacy anytime soon. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I would I would really like to. And I only just looked it up there and it sounds like something I'd really be interested in. And I'd absolutely I'd love to play with you guys sometime. So we should definitely do collaboration like that in the future. Like I, I remember what, before I started this podcast and before I really realized what podcasting was all about, I remember thinking like, oh, well, like, I really love the game diplomacy, but I wish that there was a way where you wouldn't have to arrange it so that you can get like eight people in a room at the same time or whatever it is, because that's obviously not always easy to get eight people in the room at the same time and keep them there for a week until the game is over. So playing online, I think at the time it was something I really wanted to do and I'd still be definitely up for it in the future. Excellent. Cool. Well, uh, if any of your listeners, uh, if they want to hear more about our show, uh, we're at diplomacygames.com. Uh, much the same way with the iTunes and any of your um, whatever you happen to be using for your, your podcasts, um, just search for Diplomacy Games. Um, we're at Twitter at Diplomacy Games. We don't use Facebook very often. We kind of found that we had all these fake accounts that were being created, and we thought, well, what's the point of dealing with them? Um, oh, yeah, sorry about that. That was me. <laughs> <laughs> We, we actually have on um, on our on our website. We've just recently put together a, a Google map, so that if anybody is uh, either participating currently in an actual diplomacy face to face community, or they're wanting to uh, get the word out about an existing community, or they want to start a community, um, if you go to uh, diplomacygames.com/groups. Uh, you can basically um, submit your location and provide details there or if you're interested in kind of getting a game up. And that way, if people want to actually play the face-to-face version of it, uh, which mm-hmm. might obviously create a bit of a, um, a momentum there, which we've fortunately been able to do where we are now in, in uh, Brisbane and Australia. We've got our first game next week, which uh, we're very much looking forward to. Oh, that's so cool. And uh, in the online space, there's actually... Um, well, there's like a plethora of, of different uh, sites that do all this stuff. So um, if you're interested in like the normal classic map, probably some of the example sites to go there would be uh, webdiplomacy.com or playdiplomacy.com. Both of those sites allow you to uh, play those games and there's a couple of variants that you can do as well. 
Play Diplomacy has some more deeper variants and with um, some really, really, really interesting forum-based games. Um, normally that does... Actually, forum-based games, I don't think you need a paid membership, but some other games you do. You do. There's also uh, Backstabber, is Google that. Uh, there's probably a little bit more of a simpler interface. And uh, the one that um, Kaner and I tend to go to a lot, which is V Diplomacy, which uh, vdiplomacy.com, the, the V obviously stands for variant because it's got what, over 100 different variants of, of the Diplomacy game? Wow. I think, it, I think about 30 of them are different iterations of the classic board, uh, but most of them are like crazy, crazy games. So um, uh, we've, I think both Kana and I are in about two or three um, massive games with about 36 players. Um, wow. The name. It's called uh, Europa Renovatio or something. It's basically yeah, a thing set during the Hundred Years' War. And it's the whole European map um, going down to you know North Africa and all the way out to uh, the Caucasus and and, uh, and Russia for thirty six players during that period of time, and it's just absolutely crazy. So, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's yeah, intense. Yeah, it's a bit of a beautiful map, and um, yeah, so. That's always one to, to kind of get involved in as well. So, like, V Diplomacy doesn't cost a cent. It's totally free. So um, it's actually run out of um, Germany by a, a guy over there. So, yeah, excellent. Mm. Okay. Um, Zach Twomley from uh, When Diplomacy Fails, thank you very much for being on our show and thank you very much for participating in our collaboration. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on or or thanks for letting me release this into the the main podcast feed when diplomacy fails and i hope my listeners will check you guys out and if they are interested in the game diplomacy then there are a few better ways to listen to two friends getting slightly inebriated and as well <laughs> often more than slightly but anyway <laughs> i was just being generous i know <laughs> well, we, are, we are australians and it does get hot here and you do need to keep up your, your liquids so it's very fair yes and you can't always trust the water so i mean you can always trust beer absolutely <laughs> Good. thanks zach all right guys it's been a pleasure thank so, you cheers cheers and we're back. We that are back. A, that was a solid skull, that one. That was, solid that was a much solid. better one. Yep. So, there we go. Yeah, we have it, folks. That was interesting. Very interesting. I had fun. I had lots of fun at this interview. Not that I don't have fun on the other interviews, but this was something that's a little bit different. So, I think... I think. Um, oh, and I should actually mention that that interview is not just going out on our podcast feed, but his as well. Yes. And thank you very much, Zach. Yes, thank you. And hello to all of his listeners. Oh, fuck, yeah, we should have really edited that in at the beginning. (laughs) Okay, when we get to the end, Kana, we're going to have to do like a special intro thing because, yeah, we're going to have to redo that intro. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and keep this bit because it's worthwhile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just to show you. And we did did mention during uh, during the interview for his uh, listeners that, yeah, we we do swear a little bit and we do drink lots of alcohol. So. Whoops. <laughs> and we're well into our Kilkenny and Guinness at this stage. Did I tell you I had a Kilkenny and Kilkenny? Really? Yes. Did it taste the same? Pretty much. I loved how he drinks Corona. <laughs> That's right. That's what we should have had here. We should have had Coronas with a bit of lime wedge, just like they have in Ireland. <laughs> so, um, so, was there anything you wanted to talk about post-interview? Um, look, I'd love to see Zach get involved in the game. 
So would I. I, I think there's there's this itchingness, you know, itchingness. That sounds like something like, like tinier or something like that. Um, there's an itch there that I think has just needs a scratch. And uh, I don't know. I reckon. I reckon if we can maybe organise something. And as I said I, I, with him at some stage, I think what would be great. I can't remember if we did this one on tape or after tape. We did it on the tape. We did it on the tape. It'd be great to kind of get other people who nerd out on history, who obviously like the game as well, to come together and have like a big massive yes. game yes. of, you know, people who love that space but don't play. And maybe they can kind of get the message out around this wonderful game called Diplomacy and why it's great. I, I, I think it's a long-term project that definitely needs to happen. Maybe we can get it done by episode 100. <laughs> cheers, cheers, cheers to that. <laughs> we have a goal. Speaking of, of, of issues, not issues, um, celebrations being number 50. Yes. When this comes out, it's about three years since we first started. It's like give or take a day. Three Fif- years. Three years. Because this will come out around the, somewhere between about the 15th and the 20th of August. And that wow. was when we had our first episode came out on the 21st of August in 2016. Well, we'll have to have another drink. Yeah, cheers. Uh, cheers again. <laughs> I must admit, I've kind of thought, I wonder what those, that first episode sounded like. Like how, not how bad we were, because, you know, we're still pretty bad now, but well, how thought, we had no clue back then. I just, I, I think back to um, that one episode where we thought, oh, yeah, let's try and live stream this thing. Um, <laughs> I remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> on, 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 Oh, what was it? Yeah. Some 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 app thing that no longer anyone uses. Exactly, but we gave it a go. We did give it a go. We had a bit of fun. We had people keep in thinking we were talking about diplomacy from a foreign policy point of view. They could start coming in and asking questions about Trump or China or something like that. Yeah, what was... Yes, yes, yes. So, anyway. But, um, <laughs> thank you to Zach. Yes, thank and, you, Zach. Um, it was great fun. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the insights. Yep. Absolutely. So let's get on to talking about a bit of diplomacy. So we said in the last yeah. episode we're about to have a face-to-face game, which is we need to be at in about half an hour. So yep. hopefully we'll get some food soon. And, 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 and everything will flow along there. Um, but we've also been doing lots and lots of online stuff at the moment. Well, I have. Yes. And you have too, haven't you? Um, I've been involved in several games recently cool. um, because I got really excited with the um, this big Europa Renovatio, Renovatio uh, thing. So I signed up to three games. Ooh. Um, two of which I understand you're I'm in. in yes. So we can't talk um, specifics. Too much specifics around it. No, because um, I don't want you to know that. You know, hopefully, <laughs> probably that you're killing me in one of them, and maybe <laughs> I'm killing you in the other. I don't know. But I'm still in all three games, which is a, a good sign. Excellent. Um, one of the games I am um, in the north. And one of the games I'm in the south. Okay. I thought you said you're in three games. And the third game I'm. Or was it Wayne I'd I'd have to kind of describe that as uh, more of a southern power. um, Okay. The southern game. Uh, uh, The southern game. This is the third game. Yep. Um, I'm kind of enjoying it. I, 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 I do, however, have a couple of questions for Technostar if he's. And it, it's, a speci- it's just a specific bug I'm kind of having as, as, as I'm noticing more of these games going along. Um, and I might also mention that I'm spectating two other ones. Is this connection that occurs between the Red Sea and the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, yeah. In particularly in the era that this game is being taken place in the 
you know, the mid-15th century. Yep. I just don't think that there was that kind of... Ability to move that fast. Ability to move that far, that fast. And whether or not it even needed to be, it needs to be there for the map to work. Yeah. um, Well, I I I take your point because I suppose what it does is it opens up expansion from Atlantic powers into Africa and African powers, sorry, Egyptian powers or that area into the Atlantic. But you're 100% correct. I mean, I'm not aware of any historical uh, precedent around the time that anyone would come all that way around just to attack, you know, across the Atlantic all the way around the Cape of... Actually, what's the year this is set in? It's it's set just at the fall of... um, Constantinople, so fifth, uh, 1450 right. is when the game starts. So first, when did Vasco yeah. da Gama kind of make his way all the way around the south of yeah, exactly. Africa? That's what I'm saying. So it shouldn't so, be there. Yeah, it's, it's essentially it's ahistorical. You're so. right. You're right. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm on your side on this one, Kana. I know sometimes we disagree on things when it comes to history, but I'm definitely on your side on this one. And I understand why it's put there in that... Um, you know, it offers a an alternative route to the invasion of Egypt. It gives Egypt a, a fourth power that they really a fourth neighbour. Yep. But does that need that, especially with the supply centres? I'm not seeing Egypt doing particularly well in any of the games. Um, I'm not seeing. I'm, no, I'm not seeing them doing particularly badly either. On the correct, converse. correct. Um, but we are getting like odd things like um, Morocco attempting to invade. Um, you know, Egypt, the Egypt. Mm. Um, and 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 Castile is seems to me to be doing well in a lot of the games that I'm observing as well. Yeah, I've noticed um, that as well. Yeah. So whether or not this game, whether or not it needs a, a, a like a version 1.2, I'm not sure. But having said that, I'm I'm loving it. I find I find these this large map with so many players based around Europe to be much more interesting in my opinion than the one based around North America and I'll let you talk to that because you're uh, no 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 I'll, I'll, let's, let's, let's focus first I'll, we'll come back that one we'll park that one um, I agree with you on the map because from the point of view around uh, from a European point of view it's just great to have that depth that's there um, within a European map that we currently have within divided states um, I guess the I, I totally agree with you again around that um, the the south um, with being able to move around from you know the Red Sea to the Atlantic. The only other alternative I can think of, which might be considered as a, okay, so you've talked about version you know one point what one point two one point two. So yep. mine might be. Oh, here we go. Thank you. Ta. Ta. Thank you. So we've got some beef and Guinness pies. Yes. I kind of thought maybe some chips, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, Probably don't need all those extra carbs. Um, But the other thing I thought of, the alternate would be, you kind of basically add some sea zones just underneath that African continent where you kind of can progressively make your way across, but it's going to take a long while. So if you can imagine adding an extra... Oh, we've got live music here, so why it's a bit loud. But if you kind of imagine kind of maybe adding three... um, sea zones down here all with their own overseer zone or whatever well, which you can progressively make your way across and I think that would be better to show a progression across the other if, you, thing, if you're going to do that the other thing is turning the Sahara regions into land 
zones that, that are similar to the sea zones. Well, which is what I'm kind of essentially saying. But no, but you can't do boats. it by boat. Yeah. You have to do it by army. So you could conceivably move across the Sahara in three moves if you use the overseer zones. Or, given the nature of the terrain, you can use the... Um, you can use the, 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 the sub-territories as sub-territories of the gotcha. sea zones. So you're saying um, you, you turn them into land-based sea zones, yes. but you would still eliminate the connection between the Red Sea and the Atlantic? I would, given yeah. that it, um, what, that's almost... A historical. Almost 100 years before any sort of attempt like that was attempted. So. No, I think you're right. So, um, so generally speaking, how are you doing in your three games? Well, like I said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dead. Not dead yet. Not dead yet. But probably far one from them, dead. Uh, one of them, I've got a good ally. Oh yeah. Um, one of them, I'm kind of not sure where my allies lie. Right. If I have any, I think everyone's kind of ignoring each other. Um, on the third, I'm just getting um, attacked by an aggressor which is unfortunate because I wanted to be happy and friends with him, but such is the nature of the beast. Well, in my games, I think the two games I'm in at the moment, waiting for the third to still kick off. Um, I think I mentioned last time around, and without again going into detail, I'd kind of drawn, like, if I was country A and my neighbour was country B, in one game on country A and another game on country B. So I'm like literally in, in two separate games I'm right next to, next door to the same position I'm playing in the other game. Okay. And in both of those games, when we caught up last, um, and we talked about this, I was kind of at both of those players were instantly at loggerheads with each other. Correct. Okay, yeah, that's what we did speak about. Yeah. Yep. So now things have evolved a little bit where one of those games, um, still at loggerheads and in fact now being totally shafted by my other neighbour to the yeah. extent that I'm almost out of the game. Okay, right. Without going into too much detail. But in the alternative version of me swapping sides, the two of us, whilst we started off as enemies, we seem to have kind of kissed and made up in a gunboat, which is pretty cool. That's a difficult thing to achieve. So It is, it's very difficult. Um, for any new listeners, a gunboat is where there's a game of diplomacy that takes place where no communication is allowed between players. Um, no written communication is allowed between the players. Um, so communication has to occur through um, your moves, through your, your moves, your supports, your um, support holds. Moving people away from the borders. Like what happened here, we started, what was interesting with this, where we started, you know, started support holding each other, aka throwing love. Yep. And then as time went by, I can't remember who started at first, but we started actually slowly... Um, removing units around our borders to the extent now that our total border areas are, are demilitarised, which has been great, which means that my neighbour, who's now become my friend, is going off in total opposite direction, smashing that guy, whilst I've been able to kind of um, try to do the same. Not as well as him, because I'm now kind of stuck in a battle with two people whilst he's only really fighting one, which makes it a bit easier. But... Um, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So those are the um, those are you know that's so thirty six players on a map of Europe, um, and we're alive still. You barely on one of them. Barely on one. I reckon yep. by the time this goes live, my third game would have started, um, which is the um, 
cried God to Harry or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cried God for Harry or something. Yep. A bit of Shakespearean stuff happening there. But, um, yeah, so that's how that's going. But the other big game I'm still in is my Divided States game, which has now been going for over a year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's um, and, and I think it's now up to about 40 game years it's kind of progressed through, which is fair So chunk. a year real life. A year real life. 40 game years. Yep. Yeah, so it's, I think it's about 42 game years at the moment. Okay. And you're still in it? I'm still in it. It's kind of a bit, eh, starting to kind of reach a bit of a plateau at the moment. I, I think I may have reported last time I had been growing a little bit, bit by bit. So starting to plateau. Last time I looked at this, there was a reasonably sized player who was still in it who looks like he's just about swallowed up. He's pretty much gone. North Carolina. Hmm. I take it that's not you. Well, without giving away too much stuff, if I'm saying I'm plateauing, um, <laughs> it's not me. Yes, correct. Plateauing into a, ga- into a canyon. Alright. So yeah, he's almost dead. And I reckon by the time this comes out, he'll be definitely dead. Which brings us down from seven players to six at that point. Out of the 50-player game. Um, impressive to stay with it on so long. Actually, the one thing that I'll say is this guy's just been just smashed around a fair amount to the extent that I've, I've got a lot of respect actually for that player just to hang out and just maintain his reputation and keep putting in orders and still trying to make an effort. Because mm. I've been watching what he's been doing and he hasn't like just put in holes. He's still kind of trying to trying to fight the good fight. So more power to him. Um, but the thing that's changed really a lot in this game was, I think we talked two weeks ago, there was really two solid alliance blocks. There was like one alliance which has had like two players and one alliance with five players. Yeah. And now that's just been just totally thrown out the window. The main, uh, one of the main players has stabbed, um, I can't actually remember when we last talked. So essentially what's happened is the balance of power on the United States map has shifted because one player has decided to treacherously stab his friends, stab his buddy. Oh, um, two buddies, thank you. Two but oh, oh yeah, okay. Um, treacherously stabbed two of his um, previous friends, which has caused a Actually, power disbalance. Three, allowed, three buddies. That's allowed for a big shift in. Um, what we're seeing on the board. Yeah, so yeah. so now I've, I've noticed that some players... So as a result of that, you know, other players have um, stopped attacking... Okay, let's put it this way. So like, let's... Looking at this particular map at the moment, um, we've got a large player on the west coast, we've got a large player on the east coast, and there's uh, about three or four players in the, in the central area of the United States. Yeah. So the player on the west coast was previously allied with... Yeah, I know. Um, sorry, just for people noticing when Kana was pointing to the time, saying so we better hurry up. The player on the West Coast was very much allied to um, three of those central players, but has stabbed all three of them. He's obviously trying to see what you know what he can get out of that. And I don't think he's actually done a very good stab. He's he's only picked up, I don't know, he's probably picked up about five or six supply centers, which is great. But all of those players right now are throwing units in to defend him. Whilst the player on the east coast, the big player on the east coast, is now throwing support holes to those players that have just been stabbed. So I think he's sending a clear message there that, hey, you know, your former friend now hates you. I'm now going to be your friend. That's just my interpretation of just trying to read the board. 
So but um, we'll can, see how this I, one goes. Can I just ask, is this the longest game that you've ever been involved with? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Going back a couple of years, I was involved with a 10-day um, a phase um, game. And one of the players refused to enter to ready their to ready their orders. Oh, they would no. always hit. They would always save their orders, but they would never ready their orders. And everyone this, this game just yeah, it, it literally ended up like that. People, everyone just started attacking him. But that one I remember just took forever and not in a good way. Mm. Yep. Um, other stuff is going on. What other games are you in at the moment? No, I think we just need to touch on your Google Translate game while we have time, and then. Um, Oh yes, skedaddle. Hey? Okay, okay. Well, yeah, I, I will say very, very quickly though. Over at played it. I've um, one game I previously talked about, which yep. was the Versailles game. I've now been eliminated on, um, and I'm not surprised about that because my uh, my neighbours did a great job there, and I'm still in the USA game, which crashed, but it's since been rebrought back to life. Oh yeah. But as a result of that, it seems to be a couple of players haven't worked out the game's crashed, so. I oh, may be able to make right. some little inroads into them, which is a bit of a, a cheeky way of getting ahead. But it is a very cheeky way, a bit undermined, under underhanded. Well, what's the alternative, Kane? Well, Sitting around holding. It is diplomacy. It is diplomacy. Yeah. All, all good and love and war. But let's talk about Google Translate game. And we speaking like... of fantastic ways to vary to 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 vary up your playing experience online. Um, so these these I love these Google Translate games. You know. Um, basically, players, so there's a list of different languages that you can use, um, and you need to, um, you write your message, you drop it into Google Translate, and you've got a list of languages you can translate it to, Chinese, French, Turkish, Arabic, Urdu, Latin, Spanish, all of that stuff, but then you need to translate it through, what is it, seven times? Ten I, th I think it's got to be a limit. It's got, so, this game, this game has got rules which are a little bit different to other Google Translate games. So it's got to be through about six or seven times. Mm -hmm. so you, must, you must, you must, you yeah. must use at least some of those languages that you mentioned. But you can use what other languages else you want to include in the list. Oh, okay. Yep. There's like over fifty languages in Google Translate. Um, Thank you. The idea also being that everybody's actually using their own different translation protocol. Uh, working out how they're going to do it. So the way I'm doing it at the moment is probably totally different to... Well, I know. It would have to be totally different to the other six because there's no way in the world they'd be stupid enough to come up with the way I've done my translations. I see. And it's come through very, very clearly that some players maybe have a more um, simpler approach to their translation style. Maybe they're using all maybe like romance languages, which as a result means that the, the translation is coming through... So you can kind of roughly understand what they're doing. And I must admit, I've kind of either created a rough on my back or a very interesting, entertaining version because I'm becoming constantly forwards, backwards and forwards between like Europe and Asian languages going backwards and forwards. So they seem to lose a lot in translation between that. Tell you what, here's what I think we should do. I think because we have a live diplomacy game that we need to catch. Yes. And some of these messages are absolutely worth their weight in gold. Be worthwhile reading them. My suggestion is that we go and play our game and then have a recap beer. We can let our listeners know what our playing experience is like in, in Brisbane. So we're going to do three. Three today. Three, and, three and, recordings. And, and catch up 
after our live game, discuss the Google Translate, discuss the the, uh, the face-to-face that we've just had. Right. And um, maybe 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 some blokes might come along to that too, and, and maybe and, a lady. And, and, um, we've got a lady coming along too. This is great. Um, yeah, hopefully get well, probably get a little, just a little bit more shattered for the uh, train home. How's that sound to you? Oh, I'm all for getting shattered on the way home. A bit shattered. All right, here. <laughs> Gents, we'll see you on the other side, eh? Bye bye. And we're back. And I'm Kana. I'm Ambi. And, and we're, we're joined, joined by Tony, Tony. the, but- Tony Tony the Butcher, Butcher. <laughs> who's um, you active on Twitter. Uh, no, no, we're just going to we're good. We're right. We're good. Just drinking? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Should we do that again? Um, no, no, I don't see why. Yes. <laughs> so, 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 Kana, Ambie, and Tony the Butcher. Um, so, welcome to our Playdip friends over, um, over at Playdip. Over at Playdip. So, uh, Tony's a player over there. He also happens to be coincidentally based around Brisbane, so he was able to join us at our game, our face-to-face game that we just had. Yes. Which was... Very fun. Very fun. fun. Most enjoyable. Probably not as much fun as Tony had. Yeah. (laughs) So, Tony, what what, what country did you play, mate? Uh, I was Austria. Um, Yeah, which is not my most favourite country, but... uh, (laughs) But you ended up with equal... um, Uh, Equal win with Russia, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. But, yeah. A couple more years and I would have been gone. I think everyone was beating me up, so... (laughs) <laughs> and I played as Turkey, so it didn't t- mean you were a really good ally at the start. You really kept me on my toes, and I had, as you probably picked up, I had no idea what you were doing. Mm. I had no idea what Russia was doing. Mm. And as a result of that, I kind of boxed myself into a really terrible situation, which you took advantage of at the right time, so kudos for that. We stabbed each other at the same time. We stabbed each other at the same time. I think I saw the writing on the wall you were going to stab, and I thought, I'll stab (laughs) first. (laughs) (laughs) But you did well to also then kind of cannibalise pretty much almost all of Italy, didn't you? Uh, In the the process of it, by the time we had to, um, you know, time out. Um, And I I pulled France. Um, Not my favourite country to play. However... You had a great opening. I had a really good opening, which put a whopping great piece... Yeah, or three bills, but put a massive target on my back, I think, you know. Mm. So um, we had a relatively experienced, or quite an experienced player in the part of who was playing Italy. Yes, Rob. And, um, yeah, he saw that and went, oh, right, I've got to pull him down a couple of notches, otherwise we're all stuffed. But you also overextended yourself because pretty much spring 902, you started attacking your one and only ally in England. England? No, I had... I had oh, look, I, I felt like Germany... Um, who opened up poorly, um, who really only survived at my behest, essentially, because as, as a new player, I was So Trist, Tristan, Tristan needed a little bit of a hand. Yeah. Only from the point of view that he'd never played diplomacy ever before. That's right, you know, and, and, and I felt that Italy wasn't a threat. Like, everything sort of pointed towards Italy, kind of going towards you guys you know Austria and Turkey and I thought oh yeah okay I'll um, I'll negotiate this you know a truce between us and everything's hunky-dory and then I went for a full-fledged northern assault at the exact same time that Italy moved his uh, fleets and armies I don't think it was the exact me, so. same time I think it was probably about a turn later a no turn it literally was later. you know I literally moved my I literally moved my fleet from the south coast of Spain, my fleet in Marseille, across north, and then here comes an Italian 
but part of that's my fault for building a fleet from Marseille. I, I give him that. That's yeah, fair enough. You provoked him. I provoked him. I was impressed with Tristan and Beth, how they, uh, you know, they're both new players, but they, I expected them to go down you know, pretty quickly. You know. I didn't yes. they were going to, yes. and they both yes. came back, you know, pretty strongly. Yes, and I, I emerged with a couple of stab wounds in my back from um, Tristan. And, um, well, yeah, I mean, okay, so, so Beth ended up equaling what your score was, which yeah. I think was fantastic. Tristan, if you kind of rewound back only a game year, maybe, he was pretty much in the lead, wasn't he? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he, he yeah, was yeah, doing so a great job of stabbing wide. people well, in the right yeah. centre. Yeah, I think the only one he didn't uh, stab was you, and that was only at the end. Yeah, tell me, yeah, stab me right at the end. <laughs> so definitely a, um, a, 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 a strong diplomacy player in the making. I think yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, it's definitely well done. And um, poor old Ty getting stabbed. Um, by you? No, stabbed by. We're well, talking about you stabbed Russia. him. You stabbed him in in what spring nine hundred and two? Yeah, the exact same time as Beth stabbed him. He, 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 he. Yeah, okay, that's true. Yep. It was only by virtue of Italy causing me strife in the south that allowed for him not to be eliminated. What I found interesting. So we wrapped the game up at about what autumn nine hundred and five. Yes. So full nine hundred and five and. Aside from, you know, the fact that Tony was two-thirds of the way through, you know, Italy, pretty Gobbling much Italy up, yes. everyone was not too dissimilar in their positions come, like, a normal, typical opening. Yeah. You know what yep. I mean? Yep. Yeah. Four years had pretty much just burned through and nothing really had changed, apart from just horse training. Like, the number of times that you and I... Traded backwards and forwards, Bulgaria and Romania. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that was fun to watch. That that, that Balkan, um, that Balkan uh, region, just to see what was going on. I hate the Balkans. I hate them. <laughs> it was like that. Such a hotbed. But good on you with Austria. I, I do not think I've ever had a good game with Austria online. I don't think I have. Like, I think I just keep on. I've had one, but literally one. Yeah. yeah. And that was just by pure luck, I think. I've had draw wins with Austria, but yeah. Not, not so very good. It was fun. I enjoyed it a lot. Yes, very much. I didn't find the same... Sorry, it was exciting. I enjoyed it. But I didn't get the same adrenaline rush that I had when we were in Melbourne. And I think that was just because it was a tournament and everyone was just playing a level above. Because we had a couple of new, reasonably new players in our game, I think we pretty much... I mean, I didn't... I, I could have stabbed... Beth is an example a lot earlier than I did but I yes, chose not yeah. to yeah. and because of just making sure that she can better understand the game dynamics first yes so well I'm definitely looking forward to more games absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. so um, we're talking about what every couple of months then every couple of months yeah yes yes at the same place, perhaps? I mean, they are serving out. They do serve alcohol. Yeah. They serve alcohol. Yeah. Centrally located. Centrally yeah. located. I don't see why not. Yeah, good fun being there. So, Tony, you're mostly over at Play Dip. Yes. You play just the straight classic stuff over there? Or are you, are you, are you a freebie member? Or are you a subscription paid member over there? Do you know? I'm a freebie. You're freebie? Uh, yeah. yeah, and I'm very boring. I just do the, do, do the classic. Yeah. They like the variants. <laughs> no? Oh. Why don't you like variants? Uh, I don't know. Just stick to what I what I know. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, actually, one of the I, I I always think that one of the um, 
the ways to bring people into the dark realms of variant playing is introducing them to the game Fog of War, the variant Fog of War. Now, um, the Fog of War variant is basically the same map, only the only areas you can see is what territories you own and what territories are adjacent to your uh, to your units and supply centers. You can't see anything else on the board. And as, as a, I don't know, as, as, a, as a taster for variants, I always think of Fog of War as a way to introduce people into playing different variants. I don't know, I don't know if you've played variants before. Uh, if you played the Fog of War variant. Yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't done the Fog of War, no. So I think, I think Fog of War might be an option over it, played it from memory, so... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I don't have much to do with Fog that we've played it. You know, we, we've spoken to guys from Played It before. You've had a lot to play. You've oh, yeah, I've been, I'm, on, I'm on Played It. I've, got, yep. I've just finished one game and got eliminated. And the other one, which was a Versailles game, um, the other one, which I'm currently in, is a. It's called the War in Americas, which is like one of the newer variants that has been released. Oh, yeah. or about to be released. So, um, and then most of the other times I tend to be involved more in the forum games that uh, happen over there. So. Now, you were about to show Tony before one of the variants over at oh. Medium. Yeah, yeah, one of the, yeah, so... As a comparison. As, as a comparison. Um, so this is one of the games, one of the variants which both Ambi and I are in. Um, it's a 36 player variant. I saw the 36 or 34, something like 34. that. 34. Wow. Um, it's based in Europe and this is what's going on. During um, the uh, 1400s? 1450s. 1450s. Yep. Um, so at the moment... Uh, Venice is getting close to being knocked out, so Genoa is on his way out. Um, it's a complex map because of all the supply centers. Yeah, yeah, it's really complicated, and, yeah. <laughs> that's one of the beauties of these things, is there's always a... You know, like, I, I like the variance in that you're not always sure where any given supply, uh, like um, stalemate lines happen to be. Mm. You know, you can be pretty sure you can hold certain spots on the map on a regular board given that you've got units in certain spaces but yeah. with um, you know variants is always a, it's always, you're always approaching it in a new light you know yeah that being said you kind of have something here where you've got like not so much a, I don't know if it's a stalemate line but something over here in this whatever this equivalent of Croatia is and whatever this precursor of Serbia is yeah, there's lots of little lockdown things happening there, which would be a bit hard to break into, I reckon. Mm. So maybe people are just learning new lines. But, but mind you, this is difficult because, and I don't know if you've seen this before, Tony, with some of the, these games, they have this concept of what's called a, a sea lane. So instead of just like an ordinary sea territory like Adriatic, it would be split into, in this case, four. Oh, yeah. So you've got like a northwest, northeast, south, and then you've got what's in the middle, which is called an overseer zone. So, um, using the example, basically a, a unit here in Z, like a fleet, can only move to that one yeah. or this one, like Adriatic, sorry, Adriatic northeast or Adriatic just the overseer zone. Yeah. Cap could only move to Adriatic south or Adriatic overseer zone. 
But this one here obviously connects not only just to these three, but all the territories all around it. So it's quite a powerful uh, strategic position. Yeah. Which tends to see many people then put all their effort into trying to control that rather than the the sea lanes that go in underneath. The sea lanes underneath it, yeah. That's why they're called yeah. sea lanes. Are they the sea lanes or are these the sea lanes? No, no. The overseer zone and the sea lanes are going behind ah, it. Ah, right, okay. Well, yeah. yeah. It's kind of gone out of my control now. I don't. Yeah. It's an interesting space. But we did promise our listeners um, some of what was going on in the Google Translate game. Oh, yeah, we did too. We oh, did. We, we, we can't I forgot about that. Um, that before the... Because we had like, I don't know about you, but I had like about three beers, maybe four beers over at the game. So to fill you in, Tony, a Google Translate game is that everything that is communicated in this game gets translated through how many languages? Seven? Yeah, this particular game's got to go through seven different languages in Google Translate. It's got to go through seven different languages in Google Translate, um, which results in some really interesting... Confusing. Confusing um, language that comes out. Oh, I've opened up the... Um, so this is the map here, which is the... Aberration what? 5. Aberration 5. So what year is that set in? Well, it's, it's, it's a fake map. So basically all the countries are fake countries. Okay. Well, when I say that, like the instead of okay, whilst you look at this, it's like looks like England. Actually, the player's Ireland. It looks like France, but the player's Burgundy. Spain is Spain. What looks like Italy is called Sicily. Um, the grey one is actually Poland. The red one, sorry, the purple one is Ukraine. No, Hungary. Hungary? No, the red one's Hungary. You got Byzantine and. Byzantines, the Israel, Egyptians, right. and I think maybe the purple one might be Russia. I don't know. Anyway, doesn't this is kind doesn't of um, doesn't really matter. But I'll just pull up some of the messages that come out of what happens when you take an English message because this is all posted just in, in everyone's view. You can't yeah. do private messages. It's yeah. So it's full press, full public press, full press, and so you you have like a, a standard line of English. It gets dropped into Urdu or um, Greek or Latin or you know, and then and then from that into you know Japanese and then from that into Croatian and then from that into you know God knows what other languages you're using, but you get up, you end up with some of these beautiful, um, you know, really weird, weird communications which are coming through. I don't know. I'm looking at this upside down. Um, because he knows that and sings. Yeah, I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, D, I mean, uh, uh, welcome to the latest issue of European Newsroom Newspapers. Newspaper. You read it up. I'm, I'm reading upside down. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, so this is a message from Burgundy. Welcome to the latest issue of European Newspapers and News 6 Hours. I am Ron Burgundy. <laughs> that night, which is the result of the same argument, I even knew that this was the continent. First and foremost, Channel 5 is the best in Ireland. I would like to know something about the Irish release channel in the UK. Marine to the living God, there was a green carpet there. It could be a good burgundy, Ron. We are ready to further expand Ireland and the Scandinavian countries. Spain's after Lundbergenjun, I don't know how that got translated, does not care if the Spanish war has all its own car, but about the strength of Spain, because who made the glory of my neighbourhood a little worried? 
It's all in the north. As long as the picture of the orange part, which represents the black line of York in Spain, is in good proportion after passing the Pyrenees French, otherwise then the game rabbit's mother. Arturo Mendes, you can laugh the fifth corner of the fifth floor. Tell everyone, you monitor to customise the message, I know the Velcro is bigger than the steak. Huh. Very clear. Yeah, so, <laughs> so as a result of that, obviously no one knows what's going on. And They're trying, trying to figure out what it is people are trying to say after, you know, seven languages have gone through. But some are a little bit slightly, slightly clearer. So, like, the message is just before that, I think, with um, um, Ireland saying... Mind you, I don't know how we got here. We got, Iran wants to allow other countries to change their name. I don't know why, because Iran's not even in the game. The English Channel has named the Iranian Channel. This will affect Ireland's relationship with Burgundy. For Poland, Ireland wants to expand its zenith branch to stay with the Scandinavians. We believe this fish is Polish. So you can get an idea there. My guess, just reading that, is that the translation process has changed the word Ireland to Iran. Potentially, yeah, yeah, given the... Yes. Um, the context. The context, yes. And I don't, I don't know how. We believe this fish is Polish. It, it, it must be like this this fishing ground, this... this no, this, it's got nothing this, to do with that. Something is like translate one word to another word to another word to another word and comes out, this fish is Polish. No, it's got to be like this 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 sea territory, this this It must be like ocean. Like, yeah, this locate... Yeah, so basically, I think Ireland's saying, look, we think... This might be Poland. Poland owns this sea territory. Or Poland well, should, owns or should, like, you know, acknowledging that, look, I'm happy for Poland to take over this bit. Maybe. Yeah, could be, could be. But you end up with some really beautiful kind of misunderstandings mm, yeah. going on. So I'm actually in this game. All right. And um, <laughs> the... You're Ron Burgundy, right? You're Ron Burgundy. No, we've got to edit that out because it's anonymous. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not anonymous. Okay, I'm Burgundy. Okay, you're right. Um, yeah. So the the principle behind all this is, unlike a normal game, this is deliberate. This is actually like an unrated game. So it's meant to be a fun game. If you lose, it doesn't impact on your ratings because some people in diplomacy consider their ratings important. Oh, I don't. By the way, I play for fun. I don't. I don't worry about ratings. No. I know. Um, I know. Ambiguous. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know you're very um, protective about your ratings. I am protective Amy. about my ratings. How about on um, how about on Playdip? Do you? Do they have like ratings over there? Yeah, well, they do. Yeah. Oh yeah, because like it's Conk yeah. number one. Conk. Conk. I don't know. I don't know who's number one. <laughs> I just know my own rating. <laughs> you know your own rating. That's yeah, good. Yeah. What's your rating over there? Not that you mind, as like one. Sorry, one eighty six. One eighty six, I think, somewhere around there. Oh, minus. I'm getting my ass kicked. So. Well, we um, we we borrowed. Well, actually, lobbied for a while for VDIP and WebDIP to take on one of the features of PlayDIP. In that they've got an, um, their Hall of Fame after players have been act inactive. After a period of time, they drop off the Hall of Fame, um, so that we we have like, um, and I think it's a great idea, absolutely fantastic idea. So we've adopted 
that philosophy into um, it's been adopted in WebDiv so we, we do have like active from the last six mm. months against um, all time actives and um, Ambi as he's always um, I'm somewhere growing there, on there we are 49 that currently at number 49 49 um, on, on this particular site so yeah me, I'm, 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 I'm. You're not even. Oh, is that you? Are, you're 139. Yeah. But I think it only goes to 100. How do you, how do you manage to still get in there? It still shows you where you are ranked. I don't, see, I don't see that. I just see. So the let's top say, 100. let's say you're number 600. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're seeing a bit of the site that you don't so normally see. No, 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 no. No. I guess if I kind of, you know, <laughs> played badly, I'd probably get down there. <laughs> Maybe actually, you I, I won a game better recently. so you I, don't I, see that. I actually won a game recently. I, did you? I, I was, I was what pretty game did you win? That. I won that um, that Fog of War one. Oh, did you? Recently. Yes, I was playing Russia. I did quite well in it. Thank you very much. Well it, was, it, was, it was actually a, a, a much needed win because I was feeling a little bit down about all my losses recently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I must admit, I'm kind of, I mean, my, I think we said in the last, well, when we did the uh, recording before the the, uh, the face-to-face game, I've got my two Europa Renovatio games, my Divided States game, um, the Google Translate game, and then I'm still in my 1937 A World at War game, which has been interesting because that's kind of reaching a stage now where... Again, alliance blocks are changing and moving around a little bit. But um, yeah, 1898. It's a fog of war game, so you couldn't see what was going on on the board. So they couldn't see you coming. No. And you played Russia. I played Russia. Nice. Honestly, I think I won by pure luck. To be perfectly honest, what, I don't you think played against so... bad players. Worse than yourself? No, no, no. It's just um, like look, look what's happening here. So this game starts off. Everyone starts off with one supply centre. Um, so France starts with one supply centre in Brest, an army. England, a fleet in Edinburgh. Italy, an army in Naples. Austria, an army in Trieste. Germany, army in Kiel. Turkey, an army in Smyrna. And Russia, an army in St. Petersburg. Anyway, um, so just, just have a look at what happens here. How lucky I was because of what was happening. France starts attacking Germany. All right. And just see how lucky I am to be able to walk into Scandinavia. See that? And it's only because of what France Germany, was, Germany was trying Germany to counter France. Trying to yeah. counter France right? So purely by luck, I walked into Scandinavia. And because of that, I was able to, this was a build anywhere variant. I was able to um, fortify my position on an attack against Turkey. And then um, this was this was a bit harrowing for me when Germany convoys from Denmark into Livonia. Oh, nice move! Um, a very nice move. But I was able to pay it back later on, as you'll see. Um, by a series. and again, so I was really perplexed as to why he moved out of Warsaw because at this point I hadn't seen France at all. Mm. I had no idea what was going on on this side of the board. Yeah. Pretty yeah. um, much destroying Turkey. Very lucky. Um, and I'm able to walk, like I say, this is all about luck, able to walk straight back into Warsaw and like, well, why? 
Um, and then all of a sudden, Italy starts smashing into sudden, Austria. Exactly. So that saves me again a real shit fight going on in Austria and, and yeah. Turkey. Yeah. And I was able to repay the uh, you know, repay that nice little convoy from uh, Livonia. Hello, Kiel. Yeah, very you know nice of you to uh, preserve oh, me my wow. little position mm-hmm. there. So. Um, which is literally when I convoyed into Kiel the first time I actually saw France. You know, I, I had no idea there was France or England that was going on against Germany, or Germany might have been, right. you know, whatever was happening. So, if I can digress for a second, Kane, one thing I found interesting with the face-to-face game, which was interesting in a as some, as as people who've played the game for quite a long while, we, we I think we tend to assume inherent knowledge around how the map works and seeing some of the misorders from the newer players where they obviously worked on the basis of this makes logical sense writing down orders which weren't when you go through the adjudication process weren't correct or yeah. were not quite what they intended so particularly around convoys there's, yeah. there's, there's issues um, and also support holes and even like for example I think um, Tristan at one stage was trying to move like a fleet in uh, Heligoland bite through the Baltic assuming the way the PL canal worked you just automatically traversed it rather than having to go through Kiel to then have to then go to Baltic so I think there's there's an element there which is obviously it's a bit of a steep learning curve for new players but but very rewarding hey I mean, oh well, Tristan walked away from it, going, "I'm coming back to this again." It's fun. Come back, yeah. So, it's it. What is it they say? You know, it's it's one of those heritage games where, you know, it's relatively easy to learn the basic rules. Yeah, like Go, like chess, like backgammon. Go Go is a Chinese game. Play some game pieces. Um, relatively easy to learn the basic concept, yeah. but the, the the ramifications of that those basic or of the basic concept yeah. creates a, a, almost an infinitely complex game that's ever changing. You know, yeah. and and that for me is one of the beauty of, of, of diplomacy. It, it is one of those games where it's really simple to get like to understand the basic concept, content, yeah. but how that works in application really creates that complexity yeah. and that complexity is at, in addition when you're dealing with other people it's kind of multiplied as well yeah. because of that so, so I mean Tony have you kind of played much face to face before uh, I did but it's been a long time long time long time ago yeah, yeah. so how did you find it getting back to face to face compared to online uh, it was interesting, yeah, because you know, online you kind of got more time to think about things, and face to face was you know, faster. So, uh, yeah, so I had to move, move quickly. Yep. So you know that causes you to make problems, uh, make mistakes. So. Yeah. I made a mistake in the, in the opening turn, which I thought was going to cost me because I didn't go to Serbia. Did you? <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Well, I noticed. That. I thought that was a bit weird. But yeah. <laughs> that was a mistake. <laughs> I must admit, at that point, I thought, hmm, do I bump in, in order? Do I try <laughs> yeah. bouncing him? Or? I thought you would, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I kind of made some bad choices. You let me off. So I did let you off. <laughs> That's the time. Were we too fast? 20 minutes, do you think? Or was that a nice... Oh, no, no, I think it was fine. It was yeah. a nice pace. Once I got into it, it was okay. Yeah, yeah I reckon. Yeah. And when everyone's quarters were there, it was... 
ready to go. I kind of um, one of the which which I always am, am fascinated with the face-to-face world and the, 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 the diplomacy online world is being able to watch who's talking to who. And at one point there, I'm looking over, I'm talking to um, England, and I also had, I think, um, you as well there, Ambie. Yeah. Um, and I'm looking over, and there is Italy getting really, really animated when he's talking to you, Tony. And I had no idea what I was about it. You know, but I saw you guys, and I saw Italy getting really, like, his arms going left and right, and he's going... Rrr, rrr, rrr. You know, I had no idea, but I'm like, oh, okay, maybe things are not going too well over there for, for, for Italy and Austria. You know, I'd love to know what... I'd have to be a little fly on your shoulder just to know what was being spoken yeah, yeah. about. I can't remember, but, yeah... I know, he, uh, I know he, he, he surprised me when I, when I took Venice, he said, um, you know, he said, oh, you can keep Venice. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he said, just draw a line there and just, because I've got fleets and just hold on to Venice. So I said, oh, okay, sure, okay. Anyway, so I did. That's <laughs> fine. <laughs> Until Venice moved into Rome. <laughs> of course, um, you know, uh, Ambie and I were, you know, we were talking, we, we'd, we'd taken um, Italy aside and gone, well, actually it was Ambie's um, instigation of taking Italy aside. Who stabbed who? He stabbed you? He, you stabbed yeah, he him? stabbed me. Oh, I had no intention of attacking Italy. Yeah. You know. So I was trying to get you guys to make up, kiss and make up, so that I can get bloody Italy and start... You well, I had no intention of stabbing Turkey, except that I, you moved into the Aegean Sea, which could only mean one thing. You know? <laughs> Actually, no, 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 it could mean two things, because as, as I explained to you, so I had, I had an, uh, no, what was it? What was it? I oh, know, I oh, know. I had an army in, in Bulgaria yeah. and a fleet in Con, yeah. and I moved fleet Con to a GM. <laughs> and I understand where you're coming from, but yeah. actually, I think it was Italy managed to get in my ear and said, look, hey, he's actually got the number, and we worked out, you definitely had, you had, you had three units against my two. You could easily take Bulgaria. And he said, yeah. he's going to take Bulgaria, no. So, if you keep, if you keep, your, <laughs> but if you keep your, uh, your army in con, you'll have to disband, and then you won't never be able to get it back. This was in spring. He said, better for you to kind of move now yeah. into the Aegean yeah, yeah. so that when you can you can then kind of you know sorry con to Aegean so that Bulgaria can then retreat back to con yeah, yeah. and I had my fleet in the Black Sea yeah. I think I had an army at the time in Sev mm. so I should one way or the other either be able to retake Bulgaria or take Romania yeah, yeah. But instead, it just ended up creating that extra tension and yeah, there for us. Totally aggressive, so. <laughs> aggressive defensism. <laughs> and it probably wouldn't have helped with me, you know, being your ear about, oh, you're very good, Nikki, you're on a solo position here, mate. Yeah, you know, yeah. Well, I was already good. thinking about turning on Turkey, so, yeah. And then you mentioned Italy as well, I thought, yeah. Should I take on both at the same time? Yeah, why not? Probably not. <laughs> what I well, the thing is, I was talking to Italy at my side. Based on your position, I said, look, he can walk right now into Bulgaria and he can walk right now into Venice. I said, he's going to have to pick one of us. And that turn, you took us both, both those supplies in. <laughs> it was a solid order. You know, and, and you know, we, we ended where we did, but 
Germany at the tail end. Yeah. We finally convinced him to turn his army south. Well, I must admit, oh, I must yeah. admit, because we, we did agree that we were going to play one more game year. Yeah. And I think he obviously reorientated his armies to go into Tyrolia and Bohemia. Yeah. Because we managed, we did manage to convince him that, look, you had Venice was open, Vienna was open. Yeah. Well, so, he... he asked me to take Warsaw. He's, he's offered to support me into Warsaw. So I said, okay. So I, so I didn't think he was going to turn on me. You know. gonna, yeah. Which is great for me because as a result of me stabbing and ta- with your help, no doubt, taking Sevastopol from, from the Russians, Beth was like, every single time I came up to the church, she went, I said, uh, she would always say, look, I said, Can, you know, is it worth me talking? She said, no. Nah. <laughs> not talking to you. <laughs> so then I try back channels either with Kana or with Ty to try to bring her around. Now, and it wasn't until you took Warsaw that all of a sudden she became receptive to. Yeah, and what this is one thing I guess that's interesting for for new players. She was very um, defensive around not just the supply centres, but I'll call it her territorial integrity. So oh, even right. when you were in Ukraine at one stage. Which is not worth anything. You and I, we all know that. But as a new player, it's like, well, you're in my land. Yeah. Get out of there. Yeah. So she was more open to working together at that point. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Everyone was against me by the end. So. Anyway, right. I think it's about time we uh, wrap this up. I'm Kana. I'm Andy. And we have... I'm Tony. <laughs> in tow. And cheers. cheers.